Are you an accredited investor looking for a new opportunity to generate passive income and build the retirement of your dreams? Then elevate your investment game with Viking Capital, where wealth meets wisdom. Whether you're a seasoned investor or just starting out, Viking Capital can help guide you towards financial freedom through passive real estate investing. With strong and transparent underwriting, Viking identifies low-risk opportunities with the goal of preserving investor capital and maximizing long-term growth potential. And their accessible and responsive investor relations team will help you understand how each investment will impact your unique financial goals. With $800 million in assets acquired, more than $230 million in equity raised, and more than 5,000 units under management, Viking Capital is your path to early retirement. To learn about Viking Capital's latest investment opportunity, which is available for you right now, visit go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best. That's go.vikingcapllc.com forward slash best to get started today. Did you know that within a decade, women will hold $30 trillion in investable assets? Yet somehow, only 19% of women reported feeling confident in selecting investments that align with their long-term goals. Our friends at InvestHer are out to change that. InvestHerCon is the number one premier conference for women in real estate, and it's happening June 2nd through the 4th in Austin, Texas. InvestHerCon is not just another real estate conference. It's a transformational experience focused on real estate investing, business strategies, and self-care tactics all designed to help women take control of their financial futures. Gain the knowledge and skills you need to grow your portfolio and build a sustainable business, all while connecting with over 500 women who are playing at the same level. To learn more and to get your tickets, visit InvestHerCon.com today and use the code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. That's InvestHer, H-E-R, Con.com, Promo code 100BESTEVER to get $100 off your ticket. Quick disclaimer, the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are provided for informational purposes only and should not be construed as an offer to buy or sell any securities or to make or consider any investment or course of action. For more information, go to bestevershow.com. Don't go at it alone. And I think you can learn off other people. And I think trying to do something solo and being a little greedy, looking for full amount of the proceeds or profits you get sometimes can be short-sighted. Welcome to the Best Ever Show, the world's longest-running daily commercial real estate podcast. Our hosts interview commercial real estate experts every day to get you the best advice ever with none of the fluffy stuff. Hello, Best Ever listeners. Welcome to the Best Real Estate Investing Advice Ever Show. I'm Ash Patel, and I'm with today's guest, Danny Spitz. Danny is joining us from Chicago, Illinois, He's the CEO and managing partner of Greenstone Partners, a brokerage that focuses on various commercial real estate properties, including multifamily, industrial, mixed use, retail, and office. Danny's portfolio consists of being a GP on four properties and an LP on over a dozen properties across four states. Danny, thank you for joining us. And how are you today? I'm all right. I'm feeling well. How are you? Very well. Thanks for asking. Danny, before we get started, can you give the best ever listeners a little bit more about your background and what you're focused on now? Absolutely. I'm in year 20 of real estate now out of postgraduates from college from Arizona State University. Started off as an underwriter for a middle market bank in Chicago doing commercial transactions. Banking was not my thing. I moved into real estate. It was always a passion of mine ever since I was a kid. 
I luckily landed with a mentorship, with a one-on-one -on -one mentorship to learn the business from scratch. He was a broker, investor, developer in Chicago. After a little bit of time learning the, the ropes, moved on to a larger company, which was actually one of the top 10 residential companies today in the country. And I pioneered a commercial division from scratch with a couple other colleagues. Fast forward, moved into pure commercial brokerage, investment sales only about 12 years ago, and then currently doing the same thing, but I'm doing it with my own partners and my own company for about the past four and a half years. What does that mean, doing your own thing? Own our own business, run our own brokerage company, an investment shop. Okay. Separately, yeah, that's what I'm up at. Got it. Why did you get away from residential? I never was a residential broker. I learned the business with a little bit of a hybrid concept from my mentor who owned apartments, sold some homes. And then I moved to a residential company because I was working with a lot of developers in Chicago. I found a niche in teardown properties on the north side of Chicago, which I met with a bunch of developers. And I also did commercial leasing on the side as well as part of my learning. So I was offered the opportunity to come over because no one was doing commercial at a residential company. And with that in mind, over thousand agents. By the time I left, we started a commercial group from scratch and it's still there today. I never really did residential purely. It wasn't an interest to me to be quite honest. Yeah, no, I get it. So I've been a non-residential commercial investor for about 10 years mm -hmm. and I do the same thing. I try to convince all the multifamily, all the residential people to go into commercial, look at office, retail, industrial, flex, mixed use. Out of all of those asset classes that you represent, where do you invest your money or where do you find deals today? For my personal investment, just to be clear, we are an investment sales brokerage shop and we do investments separately outside of our company here. My first property I ever purchased myself was a three flat, three apartments. After that, I said, I'm never doing that again. <laughs> and what I focus on now is mostly mixed use and retail. And the mixed use, what I mean by that in Chicago, most of the mixed use here is retail plus apartments or plus office above. There's always a retail component. Coincidentally, I do have some investments in some redevelopments into multifamily, but that's with some other partners who that's their specialty. Why do you like mixed use? Diversification of your rent roll. Apartments are probably the easiest to speculate on. I think they're the safest, historically speaking, and probably future looking. And retail, it gives you a little diversification. Now, there's obviously some advantages and disadvantages to either way you cut it. But being in a big city, I believe that the neighborhood storefronts and the retail components of whatever city you're in is really the motor that drives the neighborhoods. And I like that part of it. Danny, do you find that there's less competition for mixed-use buildings? Absolutely. Yeah. I did a solo podcast called Beyond Multifamily mm -hmm. for the Best Ever Brand. And I shared a story about a mixed-use building that sat on the market for ages, and it was four apartments over lawyer's office, but it could have been gutted and converted to anything, sat on the market. I got phone calls from residential people asking me to help them evaluate it because it's commercial, and they were all scared because of the commercial component. But if this was just four units without the commercial, it would have gone for twice the price that I bought it for. 100% so agree. I love that mixed use just scares away competition. That too. And we sell one of our core focuses that historically has been my niche being in a large metropolitan city. We've done a lot of mixed use and we continue to do a lot of mixed use sales in general versus like you just said, a three, four, six flat. 
there's 10 buyers lined up on mixed users, maybe three to four, and they all are underwriting the credit of the retail tenants differently, depending on what it is and where it is. Can you reparcel those things into two, split the residential and commercial? Done it. Ah, so now you can appeal to all the multifamily people, sell it at a super high price because they're overpaying for a lot of things right now, and then sell the retail to somebody like me that doesn't want to deal with apartments. 100%. However, I must preface that. Now, Chicago has an interesting tax situation for real estate taxes. There are tax advantages to having mixed use with apartments in Chicago specifically. Every municipality is different, I'm sure. But you get assessed at a lower rate when you have a multifamily component with the commercial. If it's 100% commercial, you get taxed at a higher rate. So there are some disadvantages to bifurcating it. Got then it. Then the commercial owner gets hit a little bit harder. What are other asset classes that you're investing in? Currently, I'm actually redeveloping an old historic temple in Milwaukee, Wisconsin into large multifamily units. And then we also acquired a land site with retail out in Arizona that we are going to entitle for a multifamily development. So not that I'm a multifamily investor, but now I'm a little bit more hands-on in recent years on it because it is a very strong and stable sector. And you're opportunistic and you're looking for wherever the deals are. Correct. How did you find the deal in Arizona? This is a great deal story. Fraternity brother of mine, I went to Arizona State, and this deal's in Tempe. He's in real estate, but he's based on the West Coast. We don't see each other that often, but we catch up. I happened to call him and catch up. I saw a mutual friend and thought I'd see how he's doing, and he's he was a little bummed out. This is six, seven months ago, and like we just dropped this deal in Tempe, and I'm like, excuse me, what deal? What are you talking about? And he's like, yeah, my friend, my partner bailed for different reasons. And he was my equity. I'm like, okay, so let me ask you a simple question. Can we simply step into his shoes and reinstate the deal? And he's paused. He's like, yes, why not? Long story short, he had about three to four months of diligence completed. Everything teed up. He sent us the package of all the information. Me and my partner here in Chicago, one of my partners here in Chicago, we went through it. We flew out there and we're like, we're in. And we had to go hard immediately to reinstate it. So because everything was all the legwork was done for three to four months up and ahead in advance, it was a very easy decision. Plus, I know the area well out there. Can't say that for a lot of other places, but in Tempe or in Arizona, the Phoenix area, I know pretty well. Yeah. A true person that's passionate about real estate, as soon as they hear the word deal, your ears perk up and you got to get to the bottom of it. How do you typically find deals? Being a broker for the past 17 plus years, it's all about growing that network and trust. And what I mean by that is, as an example, even this morning, perfect example, a good client of mine who became a friend because I did a really good job on an execution last year on a large portfolio sale of Flex Industrial, actually, in the area here. He referred me to a friend of his who was thinking of closing a textile shop in the city, big industrial warehouse type building. And I talked to the guy this morning, we caught up and told me what the plan is, retirement, et cetera. I was like, well, what do you want to do? I would love to look at this. And this is the pure example. And we pause from there and then we'll catch up later. But the example is, is deals like this come in and out of left field being in this business day in, day out for so many years. We have a very distinct demarcation of if we're going to look at it for ourselves versus look at it for our company from a brokerage perspective. But sometimes the client just wants to do a little quiet deal or private situation. If it's something that's up our repertoire, we will definitely look at it. 
so that's one example but that's usually how we find things is just being entrenched in our market here do you look specifically at a geographic region no we're agnostic to geography obviously my professional opinion is you want to be able to drive in less than a half day hopefully to places so if you have to go visit it you can but that's also part of the reason why you have partners in other locations too yeah or a direct flight (laughs) or direct flight that works So Greenstone Partners takes on investors for deals? No, Greenstone Partners is purely our brokerage company. We as private investors on the side, separately, and some other partners, we syndicate or we raise LP equity as part of the deals that we put together. Is there a company name or do you just do it based on your network? Yeah, single purpose LLCs, depending on the deal. It's deal by deal. We don't have a company that does it. Why not formalize that and blow that side of the business up? It's a good question. It's been something that's been percolating for a while now. And my partner, that's his side of the business. And they actually are getting close to doing that. They have a fund set up and that's what they're working on now. A little bit more institutionally based. So it's a little bit higher level stuff. That's kind of where we've got to at this point with the deals we look at. What kind of returns do your investors typically see? Typically what we look to provide is, at least this is my perspective, Every deal is different, so it's hard to pinpoint exactly what that number is. Obviously, you have the LP equity gets their their yield, their preferred returns. I focus on how can my investors double their money. That's how I look at it. There's no rhyme or reason to it. It's the way I've invested since the beginning, putting money in some deals with friends of mine or clients of mine. It's just simple passive LP equity. If I can see a path to doubling my equity... I feel great about it. And then you have some margin for error there as well, because obviously no one wants to put in 50 grand and get back 50 grand. You want to put in 50 grand and get more. So if you can find a way or a path and it it makes sense, that's the way I target a return. And how many years does that typically take? Well, if you're lucky, it could take less than a year, which can happen sometimes, but it depends on the business plan for the property right? Every property is different. I have properties that I'm a partner in that we just rehabbed five or six apartments, rehabbed them, leased the retail, and then we refied, got all of our equity out, and we still own it. On the same street in, in a neighborhood in Chicago, we own, uh, with one partner, three buildings near each other on the same block. One we sold, the other two we've kept because we have great debt. The other one we sold because we put a brand new medical tenant in the retail for 10 years. So we're at the max value of this lease. So why don't we liquidate, sell, and take some chips off the table? Then that took six years. That was a five or six year hold in that one, for example. Are your investors mostly friends and family, or do you have people that you don't know as well? Both. Starting with some of these newer projects I'm working on, I've gone outside my comfort zone trying to raise money. One of my partners here has raised some institutional money on his own. That's not my doing. So mostly friends and family to start, but as we've progressed in time, it's become a little bit more of a wider net from people from other parts of the country. And where are investors' expectations today in terms of returns? Are they tempered a little bit from what they were in years past? Some people like to look at different metrics, right? Some people like to look at IRRs, for example. Some people like to look at equity multiples, which is my way of looking at it. Some people like to look at what net cash flow may be if they hold it long-term. It's across the board. I I couldn't say there's one specific metric that's used because every deal and every person and investor is different. I think what's most important is that they are comfortable with the sponsor. 
if they believe in the sponsor and they're familiar with their products and their projects, I think that's almost more important than exactly quantifying what that total return will end up being. Because then you know that, okay, things happen, prices go up, things happen, economy, recession, et cetera, COVID, for example. As long as you believe in that sponsor and the project on the surface, I think most people, that's where their head's at first, at least my experience. We'll get back to the show with the first some sponsors I'm confident you'll find value in learning more about. It's no secret that everyone is trying to find the recession-proof investment right now. What if you could invest in one of the most recession-resilient asset classes of the last 25 years with one of the best teams in the U.S.? Self-storage is that asset class, and Reliant Real Estate Management is that team. Reliant Real Estate Management is the 17th largest storage operator. They have sold over $1 billion in self-storage assets and have lost no investor principal with the average project level IRR of 33% in the last three years. Right now, you can be one of the first to invest in their next fund at ReliantFund4.com. Fund 4 is a $100 million equity fund with seven properties already identified to close before the end of 2022. If you're an accredited investor, visit ReliantFund4.com to download the investment summary and schedule a call with Reliant's experience team. That's ReliantFund4.com, R-E-L-I-A-N-T-F-U-N-D-F-O-U-R.com. I'd like to introduce you to my good friends over at PassiveInvesting.com, a private equity real estate firm based out of the Carolinas. PassiveInvesting.com makes it easy for you to start investing in real estate. They focus on acquiring institutional quality apartments and self-storage facilities with private accredited investor funds. They also have a real estate debt fund that offers hard money loans to local fix and flippers across the U.S., which currently has a 0% default rate. With a portfolio of over $700 million in assets and controlling over $250 million in equity, they know how to secure the best deals and how to avoid the red flags. If you are interested in learning more, please reach out directly to PassiveInvesting.com and request the free Passive investor guide that outlines the seven red flags for passive apartment and self-storage investing. Visit PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags to download that PDF now. That's PassiveInvesting.com forward slash red flags. Danny, you've had a very successful 20-year run in this industry. What's the hardest lesson you've learned in real estate? The hardest lesson, it's one thing I keep very close to me. My mentor uh, a long time ago had this sign on his bathroom door of all places and said, if you talk about it, you lose it. And I didn't know what that meant until it's happened a few times where you get excited about a deal or an opportunity, whether it's a brokerage opportunity or an investment opportunity, and then you start chatting and talking to people. It's cutthroat business. No one cares that you found an opportunity. They're going to say, oh, interesting. I'm going to go figure that out for myself. So one thing that's important I've learned is controlling something before you get excited. Interesting, yeah. And we're heading into an environment with increased rates. What are you seeing in terms of macroeconomics with real estate? Because we're a very active investment sales company in Chicago, this is what helps with our investment thesis as well. We have a very real-time pulse on the marketplace here. And from Q1 of 2022, it was very busy. Let's just Say we put out a standard $3 million deal, mixed-use property in Chicago, for example. We normally have 7 to 10 interested parties, whether they're not serious or not, who knows. But in the past few months, ever since the volatility kicked in the high year and, and no one's sure where things are going to settle, we probably had half the amount or less, maybe anywhere from two to four 
people looking at it. So the total velocity of buyers has gone down. The buyer pool has shrunk in my perspective. And what I'm learning and what I'm hearing is that I think everyone's pausing. The institutional people are pausing for sure, but all the the private investors, I've had investors that decide I'm going to pay my cap gains instead of 1031 in and wait for this thing to settle. I think it's a mistake in my opinion because of all the advantages of investing in real estate. But we see that once things start to settle or you start seeing the settling of interest rates and capital markets, people will start coming out again. I haven't seen cap rates move much for very sought after assets, the long-term net lease properties. Are you seeing sellers be a little bit more lenient on their sale price or are they still holding steady? Depends on the asset and the psychology of each seller, obviously, but Generally speaking, the best-in-class tenants for Triple Net, for example, they are not losing a beat on their cap rates. We have a couple of those single-tenant Chipotle's and Starbucks that our firm sells, and they're still in the four-and-a-half cap range, for example. We're seeing the medium quality credits or kind of the non-credit mom-and-pop type of operators that occupy, for example, retail spaces or mixed-use. Those cap rates are ticking upwards. Our mixed-use deals in Chicago typically have been selling in the six to six and a half cap range in the past handful of years. Now we're hovering in the seven range, just as a real-time example of what we're seeing. And it all comes down to financing. That's gone up, their debt service has gone up. And the key component from what we're learning from the marketplace is debt service coverage. So as long as that stays in that 1.2 to 1.3 range, they're able to get that financing. Now the way it correlates the cap rates, as I assume most people would understand, is that that's only driven by the purchase price and the ultimate leverage amount. So we're seeing the the purchase prices trickle down a little bit for the general average deal. But like you said, the triple net, best in class, warehouses, retail, et cetera, there's no supply. And I'm assuming that's all institutional money chasing those deals. It depends on the size, but yes, the larger deals, absolutely. However, a lot of institutional money is paused for Q3 or at least Q2, Q3, but anything under 5 million, it's all private money, private capital. That's our focus. We do a lot of private capital work and you have someone who sold, we have a lot of trade buyers out of California who sell their three caps. So their apartment buildings and they come to Chicago or wherever and they say, oh, pay cash for a five cap. I don't care. That's fine. They're just parking their money. Who's buying the four cap Chipotle's for $2 million? The example I just gave you, the family or person that sold a 30 year hold apartment building in Orange County, for example, for a crazy price. And they're like, I just want to preserve my capital or preserve my wealth and park it in a four cap. Interesting. Yeah. I thought that was all institutional money, but the largest I- of this. Yeah, when you have the Amazon warehouses and the 20 plus million dollar deals, that's more institutional and that's more cap rate sensitivity because they focus on if they're a REIT, they have shareholders and yields, they got to hit and thresholds. But the private capital, they can care less as long as they don't have to pay taxes and they depreciate the asset and they get their cash flow and they have nothing to put hands off. They love it. Typically a cash purchase. Typically, yeah. Today, you can't really finance a four and a half cap. Maybe 40% leverage, you can do it. I mean, people have done that just to lever up a little bit. Yeah, interesting. Danny, what is your best real estate investing advice ever? Collaboration. Don't go at it alone. And I think you can learn off 
other people. And I think trying to just be solo and being a little greedy, looking for the full amount of the proceeds or profits you get is sometimes can be short-sighted because two or three brains is a lot better than your own just by yourself sometimes and other ideas come in and other, then you have partners for life at that point too. Yeah. It took me a while to learn that one, but very good advice. You're also an LP investor on over a dozen different deals. What types of properties are those? Some are mixed use deals in the city where the sponsor is a, is a friend who does all the construction work. He's a GC by trade. So I have some retail development deals that I'm involved with as well, like ground up, triple net type of stuff where we find the dirt and we build it. And then some pure retail condos, as I mentioned earlier in our discussion about those retail condos that are bifurcated on the ground floor, a handful of those downtown Chicago as well that I've sourced and then had a sponsor, a client buy it and I would invest with them. What are your returns on your investments? Typically, my personal goal is again back to the- sorry your LP investments. Yeah, similar. Just like as I said, how I would want to target my LP investors for my GP deals. If I can see a path of two X, that's my goal. Now I'm too young to sit back and just clip coupons and wait for those percentages to come in. I want to see how to compound on my investments. Right. So the way I look at it is, if, I, if we can refi and get all of our equity out and hold it and decide to sell it and collect my portion of the net cash flow after each quarter, each year, that's happy for me. I don't actually count the the return numbers. I just look at the total dollar amount and what the final return is. And again, I'm back to the amount of time. Do you care if it's seven years that you double your money? I don't, but at the same time, I won't invest in that deal if things can happen. I would like to look into a deal where I can see it turning around in the less than three years. And if things happen, I have a good example of an LP story a flex industrial deal I chased for a client of mine. He didn't win. I found out who won the bid. I was friends with him or a client of ours. I asked if I can invest as an LP because I just love the deal location, et cetera. We thought it was a 10 year hold. That's what we thought. Oh, this area will come up and it'll be a 10 year hold. Maybe two, three X would be great. They executed it in less than three years and we almost three X it just by their execution. And we caught some momentum in this area, a submarket in Chicago And all of a sudden I was like, wow, what we thought we can get 10 years from now, we got it within three years. So you get some of those sometimes, but then you get the reverse where you think you're going to be done in two to three years and it ends up taking a lot longer. What are the up and coming areas of Chicago? Well, that's the million dollar question. Every time you ask that to someone in Chicago, it evolves over the decades. Actually, the one behind me in my background, this is West Loop Fulton Market. This has been the fastest and still is the fastest growing submarket in the country. Just by pure development, it was an old meat packing district, manufacturing district. I did a lot of business in this area pre-recession in the 2000s and still today. Some of the stuff behind this photo actually is stuff I've worked on. But that is the most prolific neighborhood right now in Chicago. There are some upcoming areas in the Northwest side and neighborhoods that are starting to come around. However, there's some gentrification components there that cause some pause in the city. And that meatpacking industry, it's like 15 years in the making, right? They've tried to revive that for a long time. Yeah. Yeah, really over 20. I don't know if you're familiar with Chicago at all, but. Yeah, my wife grew up there and I was there all the time when we were dating and we took her to some restaurants down there and it was on the verge of coming up, some hot restaurants, but I guess it never popped. Yeah, now it's out of control. Google, McDonald's headquarters, you name it. Everything's over here, all the restaurants, the best chefs, et cetera. 
And I lived over here and worked over here and we used to walk around with the carcasses being held going across the street from one place to another. And it was a good time back then. It's, it's not the same, that's for sure. But they kept a lot of the charm. Yeah, Danny, over the last, I'd say, five, seven years, a ton of people have become residential realtors. And that market's starting to slow down a little bit. Would you recommend they become commercial brokers? Yeah, it's a completely different dynamic. The way I frame it is residential brokerage, you're dealing with more emotions than you're dealing with business decisions. And I was a finance major. I was a business person, worked for a bank. It's ingrained in my brain. So for me, it was a natural fit. I've worked with a lot of people that would try to do both and you can't really do it. You got you to gotta pick up one lane and focus. And in my opinion, it's always worth giving it a shot because it's more lucrative in the end of the day less populated, right? There's not many of us that do it. But the key is, is that if you do do it, you need to find someone to take you under their wing the way I did and most people do, or at least have a team in place that can teach you, which is what we do here at our company as well. We help all the younger guys out and coach them along the way. Great advice. Danny, are you ready for the best ever lightning round? Always ready. All right. Danny, what's the best ever book you recently read? So I was going to answer this question in a certain way because recently is not a good term because of uh, my life, my three young kids. So reading has fallen off the party list. But most recently, Four Hour Workweek from Tim Ferriss was a book that I really liked. And my takeaway from that is not that I'm trying to work four hours a week like the book implies and there's ways to do it. But what I took out of the, the book and the readings was I learned a better way to become more efficient, work more efficiently and be in a better mental state. A lot of tips, a lot of points in there that I took away from that. Not trying to outsource all my work to overseas and all the automation. That's the point of the book. But there's a lot of little things in there that really help you focus and work better. I need to reread that. It's been a lot of years. So thank you for that. Danny, what's the best ever way you like to give back? Personally, I donate to numerous charities across the spectrum, whether it's my business world or my personal world. But what I'm really excited now that I'm hitting that 20-year mark and I'm going to the next 20 years is giving back to the younger generation in real estate. And we have some programs here in Chicago that we are a part of that we donate to. And then we mentor either students or just coming out of college in the real estate world that we like to give back by coaching them and mentoring them. Danny, how can the best ever listeners reach out to you? The easiest way is to go to our website at greenstone-partners.com. All of our contact information is listed there. It's the easiest way to see what we do and how to get hold of me. Danny, I got to thank you for your time today, sharing your experience over a 20-year career, a lot of the nuances of commercial real estate. Thank you again for your time. I appreciate it. It's great being here. Best ever listeners, thank you so much for joining us. If you enjoy this podcast, please leave us a five-star review. Share this episode with somebody you think can benefit from it. Also, follow, subscribe, and have a best ever day.